Tonight, I want to pick up and, and begin reading this evening in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. And I believe I'll be able to get through all of this tonight. If I don't get through all of it tonight, I'll pick up next week. But um, if, I, if I get through all of it, then next week, uh, it, this passage flows right into chapter 3. And it'll, we'll be talking about marriage and and how husbands and wives are supposed to treat one another. This, is, this, this begins a marvelous section of the book. But this is a little bit confusing if you don't understand everything that, that Peter is trying to, to get out. And um, it's not confusing if you just take it for what it is, but then you may find yourself going, well, how does this apply to me today? And I hope to help you see that tonight. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Now, I've told you many times when the Bible talks about the flesh, uh, that it's talking about our self-will. And, and for those of you that do not have an ESV, the little study Bibles that we made available to everyone, uh, you know, I, we're using ESV because that's the study Bible with the margins that you can make notes in that, that we're using on Wednesday nights. But here it's talking about our bodily passions, our desires that are to be disciplined. But it could also apply to emotional passions like anger and a temper or, or lust or hate. It's, it's, that's, what's, that's what's being brought up here. He says, I'm, I'm urging you, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, notice that, when they speak against you, they will, as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now remember, Nero was emperor when this was written. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, don't go out of here and say, well, I'm going to do good so I can put your ignorance to sleep. You know, don't, that's not going to make you friends and wins people. But look at what he's saying here. So, by doing good, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Now, there's two distinct statements right there. Honor everyone, but love the brotherhood. or love the church. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Fear God. Honor the emperor. That's Nero. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and you suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, before we break this down, you just kind of think through the Gospels. Jesus endured the unbelief of his own people. Jesus endured the false accusations that were made. Even his miracles were attributed to demonic power. Jesus endured persecution. Jesus endured a false trial, a trial that was illegal that had. Jesus endured the, the horrors of, of what we go through and we kind of live through on Good Friday of how Jesus suffered for us and was scourged and beaten for us. Jesus endured the carrying of the cross and the crucifixion and literally taking the sin of the world and much greater than that, becoming sin for us. That's what you have to get hold of. He, he became sin for us. None of us can really comprehend that. If you're a pig and you live in the mud, you don't know anything but the mud. When you and I live in this world, we don't know anything but this world, but God became one of us and lived as the second Adam, pure, free, and then at Calvary became sin for us after the scourging in his human flesh. That, that's a thought that still after all of these years, when I try to put my mind around, I can't comprehend it. And I say, Lord, I'll never fully understand, but I believe. Amen? So that's what you're looking at. And then he was crucified for our sins and he died upon that cross. So that's kind of, he's they know this, but if you read this real quickly, you don't think through those events that we celebrate during the week of the Passion. Now notice, we'll pick up. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I think the question when I read this tonight is, how can I live in such a way that people can see the glory of God in my life. And I, it's easy to take that for granted. It's easy to just say, you know, I'm going to do good, and by doing good, people are going to see the glory of God in my life. But then sometimes people blindly, when you're doing good, they will accuse you for doing good for the wrong reasons. They will accuse you for having ulterior motivations. And have you ever been accused of having an ulterior motivation for something that you've done? Uh, Heinz, your case, I didn't know if you knew we were all sitting or not. If you need to stand, that's fine, dear brother. I just thought I'd, okay, it's fine if you stand. Yeah, if you want to stand, that's great. I just, I didn't want you standing thinking that waiting on me to pray or something. You're fine if you want to stand. Okay. <laughs> Good. So, we're going to be accused from time to time. And sometimes I've done things for Becky and she goes, okay, what's up? Okay. Becky tells me all the time, she says, I know you're going to be preaching on marriage. And I say, why? She says, because you're being extra nice before you preach on marriage. <laughs> you know, and you, we all deal with these things, but sometimes people who are trying to discredit the gospel, they will accuse us of having ulterior motives or 
if something good happens, then they try to, to, to bring about something else to do with it. And what Peter does is he recognizes and he tells them, you're going to be falsely accused for doing the right thing. And you're going to be accused of having ulterior motivations. But he's going to lead us for the rest of this epistle into lifestyle proverbs, into lifestyle teachings that if we will follow them, we will absolutely silence the ignorance of foolish people. Because even though they may blindly and ignorantly accuse us, the longevity of our life and our witness among them will put to silence all of the falsehoods that they try to attribute or accredit to us. And so what I want you to see this evening is if you pick and choose these things, then you're missing the context because in a real sense, going back to my message, not this past Sunday, but the Sunday before last, Peter's giving us how we can do spiritual warfare, how we can put legs on our prayers. There are guidelines that he's going to give us on how to relate to all human institutions and all authorities. He's going to give us guidelines on our marriage. He's going to give us guidelines for our workplace. We're going to talk about, we won't get into an in-depth discussion of slavery, but we're going to talk about how that applies to us today. We're going to get into conversation as we go through this now, how to deal with people who are abusive, people who try to abuse you, and how you don't live as a doormat to those people. Turning the other cheek does not mean that all of a sudden you become this mousy little person that you allow other people to walk all over you. But what I want us to see tonight, what I really want us to look at, especially in these first two verses, is I want you to see what, Paul, what Peter says here. He says, you've got to see yourself living as a sojourner. You've got to see yourself living as an alien. You've got to see yourself as a pilgrim. You've got to see yourself, you're living in this world, and because of your conversion, you're now a different kind of person. In other words, in this culture, you and I are aliens. This is our Father's world. This world belongs to our Father, and everybody in this world belongs to our Father. But in this culture in which we live, and Paul, Peter, living in the Roman Empire under the tyrannical rule of Nero, where Christians are being hunted down and persecuted for their faith, he says, you need to understand, though this is our Father's world, you are an alien in this culture. And the longer I live, the more I see how the culture is trying to put passionate followers of Christ into a ghetto. But we cannot allow ourselves to be put into a ghetto. And sometimes I understand where Christian parents and Christian families say, oh, it would be so nice if we could all move into the same neighborhood together and we could all be neighbors and we could all send our kids to the same kind of school and we could just separate ourselves from the world. Beloved, you're already separate from the world. We looked at that when we, when the night I illustrated how we are sanctified and we are made holy. You're already separate from the world but your lifestyle, if you, live for Christ, if you live for Christ, then we have got to understand how do we fight the own sinful desires that come up in our own lives? 
Because if we're all honest with ourselves, there's going to be sinful passions and sinful desires we wrestle against. As a 16-year-old teenager, I remember saying to my dad and saying to my pastor, it must not be nice to be as old as you are and not have to deal with the temptations that teenagers deal with. And I've never been laughed at so hard in my life. I'm now older than both of them were when I told them that. There's always these passions and desires. And in my youth, I thought just some reason as you got older, you didn't wrestle with those things anymore. But like the Bible does, and Peter is especially good at, Peter is going to bring all of this down to doctrine. Peter is going to bring all of this down to explaining why we do what we do. And sometimes we sing here at Woodland, and Mark, you might remember the name of the course. I couldn't remember it today. It's all because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. And we'll sing that. That course comes up. It's all because of Jesus. Well, everything we do is because of our union with Christ. Christ, and all of that I just told you, we live in the passion. There's a reason for that. Christ became man, but he still was God. Theologians call that the hypostatic union. That is, that God became man, but by becoming man, he didn't give up any of his divinity, neither did he give up any of his humanity. And tonight, Christ lives within you and I. And so everything we do, it's what that song we sing around here is in the chorus where it says, it's all because of Jesus. Our lifestyle, our virtues, our faith, it's all because of Christ. And when I say lifestyle, I'm talking about how we live our lives. Our virtues is, is, the, is, is, is what we choose to live our lives by, of honesty and purity, of sharing and generosity. And I could go on with all of those virtues. But our faith in God, we have faith in God because of Jesus Christ. He opened our eyes. Without Him, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. As a youth pastor, I illustrated this one time to my kids and with an old empty coffin. And I said, how many of you know if you were buried in one of these things, you're dead? And I had some of the girls kind of dress up and walk by and swing their hips. And I said, how many of you know that will never bother a dead man? And I had some of the guys come by really macho and say, how many of you know that will never bother a dead woman? You're dead in trespasses and sin. But when you become alive in Christ, you become dead to these things. Everything we are is because of Jesus. Martin Luther once said, a simple layman armed with Scripture is to be believed above a pope or a cardinal without it. Now, Luther's point there was not to try and poke the cardinals or to poke the pope. Luther was trying to really bring out to them the popes and the cardinals were appealing to tradition. There's a very famous statue in Wittenberg, Germany, where where um, Luther is debating, it's a, a statue of Luther debating Van Eyck, which was a, a German cardinal. And in the debate, the inscription above it is that Luther appeals to the Scriptures in contrast to Van Eyck appealing to the, to the traditions of the church. And when you go back and you read the historical record of those, 
He silences Van Eyck because he says, you're appealing to all the traditions and you're appealing to all the dogma and you're appealing to all the history, but I appeal to you from the Word of God. He's the Word of a human being, he said, is a little thing. It flies up into the air and is gone, but the Word of God is heavier than heaven and earth. What was he saying? The same thing Jesus had said, that heaven and earth may pass away, but not one dotting of the eye or no one crossing of the T. Not one thing is going to pass away from the Word. And this is important tonight because our belief in Christ is doctrinal. We believe in Christ becoming fully God, fully man. And everything we believe in, that's the reason I remember I preached a message one time here at Woodland. This is years ago, years and years ago. I preached a message, things I would go to the wall for. And the first thing I put was not my family, was not my marriage, was not the church. The thing I would go to the wall for, first and foremost, was our doctrinal beliefs. It's important what you believe. Because what you believe determines how you're going to live. It will determine your lifestyle, your virtues, and your faith. And it's interesting to me that John, Peter, and Paul, throughout the New Testament, they give you doctrinal reasons, and most of the time trace it all the way back to the Old Testament, for the behavior and the lifestyle they call for. And so when I hear people say doctrine doesn't matter, friends, that is just absolutely the most foolish thing I can imagine. Listen to this from 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. There are people sometimes who tell me, oh, I believe what you believe I believe that we should love everyone. I believe in forgiveness. I believe in in peace. I believe in generosity and sharing. The problem is with you as a Christian is you got to bring Jesus into it. If I could have Christianity without a belief, then I've got to believe in Jesus Christ as the only way to God the Father. That's why wars have been fought, they tell me. That's why that there's a, so much pain. And you've heard it in the news. Religion has caused all the... Friends, let me tell you something. A doctrinal-less Christianity, a religion-less Christianity will not change the world. Why we believe what we believe is because of Jesus Because tell me why should you share if you don't believe in Jesus? Why is one human life, why is what, uh, why is the unborn child in a baby's body important? Why is that unborn child sacred? Why is the life of another? You can't prove that. You can't, there's not a scientist in the world that can take a test tube or a graph and prove that human beings are created in the image of God and therefore life is sacred. You can't do that. You can't prove that you should share with one another or you should give one another forgive. You can't prove any of that with science. That's the reason that I think that evolution is such a dangerous, dangerous doctrinal teaching because the moment that any dictator can take Christ out of Christianity and say, you know, if we'll just love one another, that's tyranny right there because 
when somebody tells you then you've got to love, you've got to forgive, but you can't have Jesus, then all of a sudden you can control the agenda. Christianity and our faith is not controlled by a Republican, a Democrat, a scientist. It's not controlled by culture. Christianity is controlled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. See, that's why this is so important. And every once in a while, I'll bump into some ignorant person that wants to say, Jesus divides. Well, yes, he divides. That's the reason I just went through the week of the Passion with you. The moment I say Jesus Christ is the Messiah, then all of a sudden my Muslim friends that I have lunch with and I dialogue with, there's a bit of a division between us. The moment I say that Jesus is the Christ, there is a bit of division between me and my Jewish friends. Becky and I just were invited to Washington, D.C. And there I was asked to give a talk. The vice president, our several senators were in there for that talk that I gave. And the talk that I gave at the Mayflower Hotel, right down the street from the White House, was simply how we could work with people who disagree with us and other faiths as long as we don't try to get the other person to compromise their faith. And so I say to my Jewish friends and my Muslim friends and my Hindu friends and my atheist friends, I say to them, I could wish nothing more than you would come to know Jesus Christ as I know Jesus Christ. But the things that we can share values upon and we can work together, I could wish for nothing more than us to work together for the good of our neighborhoods, our community, and our nation. But if you ask me to surrender my belief in Jesus, then we can't work together. And there are some people that can handle that, and there are some people that can handle that. Why do we forgive? Why, do I, why must I forgive you? If you harm me, why must I forgive you? Justice says I should, you should be made to pay. Why do I forgive you? Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Why does every human being have worth and dignity? Because they're created in the image of God. Why should we believe what we believe? Because there are literally hundreds of reasons that we can point to how Jesus supernaturally fulfilled prophecy. Now you say, Pastor, why is this so important? Let me leave the platform for just a second. This is so important because if you get this truth that what we believe is biblically correct and doctrine matters and that all of our doctrine is rooted in Christ that literally becomes the blowtorch in your life that sets everything aflame and on fire. If you take it away, if you take away our faith in the Bible, if you take away our faith in the one God revealing Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if you take away the fall of man, if you take away doctrine, if you take away what God has revealed about us, you are left with nothing more than a form of religion that will eventually collapse upon itself. Because without Jesus, a dictator emerges. Without Jesus, another master emerges. 
And the only way you're going to get the endurance you need, and this is what Peter is getting at here. He said the only way you're going to be able to, to get the endurance you need to live in a culture where you're aliens and sojourners and where Nero and where other Gentiles are going to say all manners of things against you falsely is if you truly believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the core central tenet of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will be honest with you. I confess I have much more in common with my Jewish friends than I do any of my other friends of other faith. We come from a Judeo-Christian background. The difference is, I know and they know they're never going to be able to keep that law. They're looking forward to a temple to be rebuilt and the sacrifices to come again. I look back to where the sacrifice has been made once and for all, but I also know the time is coming when their eyes are going to be opened according to the Scriptures, and they're going to see that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. It's not my job to convince them of that. It's my job to be faithful and bear witness to that and earn their respect by the way I live my life. And here's what I've heard from Jews and Muslims and Hindus alike. And here's what I was told just this week. And that is, if we are not people of faith and conviction and principle, then we are disrespected. We have to be willing to stand up for our faith. Why am I sojourning in exile? Because of Jesus Christ. When, when Peter writes this, that I'm a sojourner in an exile, Again, if I just try to take these maxims without Christ, then I'm going to go, something's not working right. Something's not because I'm trying to live Proverbs without the conviction of Proverbs. I'm trying to live New Testament Proverbs without the conviction of Christ being Christ. But now, to say I'm a sojourner and an exile, I think you've got those written down now. I I want you to listen because this is important. It sounds negative, A negative is just another way of putting a positive. Say that to your neighbor. A negative is just another way of putting a positive. Say it again. A negative is just another way of putting a positive. So when one of the big ten commandments says, thou shalt not lie, it's telling you, tell the truth. That's a positive, right? When one of the big ten commandments tells you, thou shalt not commit adultery, what's it telling you? Love your wife, love your husband, be loyal, be faithful. A negative is just another way of putting a positive. Because this is a very positive epistle. Beloved, circle that word in your Bible or in your outline one. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners in exile, abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Philippians 3.20. Now follow with me. We're going to move real quickly here. Our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul wrote in Philippians 3.20. What's he saying? He's saying there is a change in your status. There is a change in your citizenship now. You live according to the politics of heaven, not according to the culture around you. That's very important. You live according to the politics of heaven and not the culture around you. Because now, because of Christ, you're a citizen of heaven. Now, this is so important because you remember one time, Paul, let's go to the Apostle Paul for just a second. The Apostle Paul was unfairly beaten in the city of Philippi 
And what did he do? He appealed to his Roman citizenship. Remember that story? And it caused everybody to be frightened. And he wouldn't just let them kick him out of town. They had to come and release him properly. And his citizenship was very important. Cities were city-states back in those days. What Peter is saying here and what Paul is saying to us, I, in this culture, not this, this is my father's world, but in this culture, I am an exile. I am a sojourner. I am living according to a totally different lifestyle. And this change of status is so dramatic that to become a citizen of heaven, I have had to renounce my citizenship here in this culture. Doesn't mean I have to renounce my American citizenship, but in this world's culture, I've had to renounce my citizenship there. There are some nations, the United States is one of them, that if you become a, if, as an American citizen, there are some nations, if I was to want to become a citizen there, I would surrender my citizenship as a U.S. citizen. I'm not about to do that. I'm grateful, I'm proud, I'm thankful to be a U.S. citizen. But the moment I cross the line and I give my life to Jesus, my status changes. We live real close to Canada, don't we? Uh, and I would suspect we could go up to the UP and we could just walk across from the United States to Canada, right? Is there places we could just walk across? But I could get within six inches of the border and still not be in Canada. All I got to do is take one step. That's what Paul was saying to, to King Festus. He says, You've almost persuaded me, Paul. Think I'm that easy to be persuaded. He's like, I wish you're right there at it. And he walks away. When it comes to the things of God, even nature teaches us. A vacuum, if I understand a vacuum correctly, a vacuum has no molecules in it. But the moment you have one molecule in a vacuum, you no longer have a vacuum. When you have one molecule you no longer have a vacuum. We have totally switched our legal status. Not in order to be accepted, but in order to, to be free from our sins. And we put our faith in Jesus and not in religion, not in the things of this world. And we say, God, have mercy upon us. Save us. And we're not trying to be good. We're not trying to be righteous. Look at me. If you take from anything I ever preached to you, try to be good, try to be better, you have missed it. Our goodness doesn't come because we try to be good. Our goodness comes because Christ has given us His righteousness by faith in Christ. And therefore, the Father looks at us and says, Dennis is the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean I always act righteously. And why? Because there are fleshly passions that wage war against my soul. You know, I get impatient. You know, I say I'm going to set this time to fast, and then somewhere along it, I go, you know what, I'll fast another time. And so hunger wages war against my... I'm doing real good until all of a sudden I smell a hamburger and french fries. And right now, I am just pumping saliva like you wouldn't believe. So if you see me spraying, you'll know why. <laughs> there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with the desire, what would be wrong is to break my covenant to fast if I was fasting. So I don't even need to be fasting to want a hamburger and french fries. Let me illustrate like this. Until Becky and I said, I do to one another at the altar, we were not married. 
There were liberties that we could not take with one another. There were freedoms and desires that we could not enjoy with one another. Until we said, I do. And can I tell you something? Just in that moment when I said, I do, I was married to Becky. Becky was married to me. There's been no question about that. We were married. Get it? One person got it. Get it? Good. Yes, lucky me. But the point is, my status changed. The moment I slipped that ring on her hand, and I think this is like the fifth wedding ring I've had. The moment she slipped the first wedding ring on my hand, I've been married ever since. My status changed immediately. That's what happens when you give your heart to Jesus Christ. Your status changes. Your citizenship changes. I think one of the most beautiful ways of illustrating this, if you've ever watched the Lord of the Ring movies or if you've ever read, and, and I'm going to tell you, the movies never do justice to the books. But you remember the hobbits? And, and I can see right now I'm not going to finish this, so I want to take a little time to illustrate this. You remember the hobbits, the little furry pedestrians, you know, that had the big feet and the hairy feet that walked everywhere they went? And... And, and, and the hobbits go off on this wonderful adventure. They leave. Remember when they, what was the name of the country? Paul or Ben? They get and he's about to take a step and he says, I've never left. I've never, thank you. I knew you knew. I've never left the Shire. And one step and they make a big dramatic scene. They step out of the Shire and they're off to an adventure. And in this adventure, they battle all kinds of enemies. In this adventure, they work with this almost heavenly type of race of people called the elves. And they make music. They do incredible things. They shoot arrows like I could shoot a rifle. It's over and over and over. They slay orcs and they slay dragons. And they see Mordor fall. And they don't realize they've been changed and they come back to the Shire. They come back to the Shire. And all of a sudden, they're leaders in the Shire. They have influence in the Shire. But nobody quite understands them because everybody that never left the Shire, everybody that never left the culture, they're still just little pedestrians enjoying their pipes and enjoying their pints. But these hobbits that have been on an adventure and have battled with the elves as their allies and they've seen mortar fall they come back and let me just read you because they would go down to the ocean and they would say we still remember we who dwell in this land far beneath the trees the starlight on the western seas you want to know why you have a hope of heaven in your heart tonight you want to know why even though you live in this, this culture and you love the people here and God has left you here, but there is a heavenly hope in you tonight? It's because when you accepted Jesus, you've tasted the goodness of heaven. You have tasted the goodness of God. A book I read just before I moved to Michigan by Stephen Carter called The Culture of Disbelief. 
he wrote these words, religion is at its heart a way of denying the authority of the rest of the world. It is a way of saying to fellow human beings and to the state, those fellow humans, the, to, to the state, those fellow humans have erected, no, I will not accede to your will. Stephen Carter is writing about the crisis that comes when Christ is no longer the center of Christianity. You see, without Christ, there is no church. Without Christ, there is no Christianity. And no one trusted the Word of God more than Jesus Christ. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among His people. He will live with them. They will be His people. And God Himself will be with them. If I go any further, I won't have time to do justice tonight. So I'm going to ask you if you would to stand with me. And could we just come and find a place around the altar for the next few minutes? And would you ask the Lord to just touch your soul and give you a hunger and a thirst and a greater taste for the things of heaven? I feel like Sunday morning, and that's probably not even the best word. I think Sunday morning, at the conclusion of this service, we experienced a taste of heaven here. Something happened standing in the pews in the second service Sunday morning. People were coming to me after the service going, Pastor, did you sense that? It's, it's like for just a moment, heaven itself came down and touched our souls in that service. It was an unplanned moment. It wasn't an emotional moment. It wasn't a weird moment. It was just a sweet moment where the Holy Spirit just touched all of our hearts and we worshiped. How many of you felt you experienced what I'm talking about? It was, it was uncanny Sunday morning, what God did. So I'm asking you if you would just come and find a place in this altar tonight. You may not know when you gave your heart to Jesus. You may have given your heart to Jesus when you were young and you don't remember it. If you're like me, you remember the date and the time that you gave your heart to Christ. But there was a moment when just like the hobbits who left the Shire, you crossed into the kingdom of heaven and you were born again. And God himself moved into your life. So if you're able, just kneel in his presence and worship him and say, Lord, Open my eyes. I want to see Jesus. Open my heart. Open my ears. I want to listen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Lord, I love you. Hallelujah.
When it comes to faith, there is no middle ground, beloved. You're either in Canada or you're not in Canada. You either have a vacuum or you don't have a vacuum. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. But if you're in Christ, it doesn't mean you don't love the people in this world. It doesn't mean that you don't love your nation. But you're not a part of this world system anymore. And there's a longing for a place called heaven. There's a longing for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. If you've lost that tonight or that's grown dim to you, then ask Him this evening to come and fill you once again. Ask Him to enchant you once again with a vision of heaven, with a love for Jesus and a passion for Jesus. Ask Him tonight to let you sense what it means to be the righteousness of God in Christ. Not because you're trying to be good, but you're a new creature in Christ tonight. I love you. I need you. Though my world may fall, I'll never let you go. My Savior, my closest friend, I will worship you until the very end. Jesus, Lover of my soul, Jesus, I will never let you go. You've taken me from the miry clay, set my feet upon a rock, and now I know. I love you, I need you, though my world may fall, I'll never let you go, my Savior, my closest friend, I will worship you until the very end. You know, that's a beautiful song, but as we sang it tonight, I think there's something I need to make clear. Jesus will never let you go. No man, no power in hell can pluck you out of the hand of the Father. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Don't let go of your faith, but friend, God will never let go of you. Hallelujah. Becky, let's sing it again. Jesus, lover of my soul, Jesus, 
I will never let you go You've taken me from the miry clay You set my feet upon a rock And now I know I love you I need you Though my world may fall I'll never let you go My Savior My closest friend I will worship you Until the very end Open my eyes, Lord Open my eyes, Lord Open my eyes Open my eyes. Open my eyes, Lord Jesus. I meet with people periodically who don't go to our church. I never cease to be amazed by the questions that I'm asked. And there are times when I look at people and I think Lord help me to see them as you see them because sometimes the things they tell me or sometimes the behaviors that I see I'll be honest with you I because I live in a different kingdom because of Christ I have a different lifestyle a different virtue different faith I feel that desire to almost ghetto and just be with the people of God. And yet I can't be salt and light if I do that. And I certainly can't look at them and look down upon them or I will never love them the way Jesus loved them. I will never see them the way Christ saw them. As we go through the rest of this book, that's going to be part of our prayer. God, because we're in you and you are in us, we're in a different, we're citizens of the kingdom. Help us to see this world. Help us to see the Neros of this world as you see them. They are pitiful. They are powerless against God and against the things of God. 70% of the world's Christians, listen, this, this is from the Pew Research. 70% of the world's Christians live under repressive governments tonight. What that simply means is that the freedoms that you and I enjoy here or Canadians enjoy or Europeans enjoy is nothing. It's, It's nothing about that that I can see that is strengthening the faith of God's people. The people with a really strong faith and a grasp on the things of heaven are those people that are living in those repressive governments and Jesus matters more to them than their persecutors. And so I find myself praying, Lord, 
Take away my love for the comforts of this world. Take away my love for the things of this world. Take away the love I have for my reputation. I used to say that's all I have is my reputation. When the Gentiles mock you and talk evil of you, you silence them by the life that you live. If I have Christ, I have everything. Can you say amen? If I have Christ, I have everything. Well, Lord, I ask you to bless your people tonight. Send us home with a taste of heaven, a recognition of our citizenship, and may we be like Tolkien imagined those hobbits that had returned from a distant country. May we love our land, but may the song and the hope of heaven always be in our hearts. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said, amen, amen, and amen. God bless you.